0: Well, good morning, Rivertree family. Uh, Thankful to be here. Uh, First things first, just elephant in the room. I have this thing on my finger. It's brand new, it's a gift. (laughs) Last night, I went to the emergency room uh, and got stitches because I was down the hall in my office, and I, I was throwing trash away. I wish there was a really cool story for this. There's not. It makes it way worse. It literally compacted trash and hit a piece of glass and cut my finger open. Um, I want to tell you part of this story because I learned something new about my daughter in this moment, who's three and a half, and this was fantastic. So I am in the office with Elsie, uh, and Deanna is down the hall. So it's just me and, me and Eleanor. I, I do this, and it's I will spare you details, but it was not pleasant, all right? So I grab my finger and I look, and the only thing I see is Justin Borth, our student pastor's office (laughs) door is open and he has an ugly Christmas sweater on the floor. So I run and I grab this and get the irony of this. I pick it up and it says, oh snap, and it's gingerbread men with frowny faces and their arms bitten off. So that, so that's what I grabbed to cover my finger with. And as I grabbed it, I'm like, of course this would be it, right? It was like ordained that this moment would happen. And I turn around and I look at my daughter and as calmly as I can, I say, hey, Elsie, I need you to grab your toys because we're probably gonna have to go to the hospital. And uh, she just looks at me and goes, why, daddy? And I'm like, because daddy just hurt his fingers. So I then say, "Hey." I think we need to go to the hospital. So she comes in and she, as if you've met my wife, very pleasantly looks at my daughter and says, Hey, honey, we got to go right now. And my daughter does this sensing the urgency in the room, she decides to fall on the floor sideways and go, Why am I in trouble? And I was like, this isn't about you. We got to go. So we get, <laughs> I, we literally have to pick her up off the floor because she thinks she's in trouble. And we get in the car. And first thing she says when we get in the car is, Daddy, can I have a snack? Which is amazing. And the first thing I thought is, yeah, she is my wife's daughter. She wants a snack right now. So and, uh, we got to prepare the hangry kit, you know? So um, that's what happened. Uh, so this entire sermon is going to be fun that we get to look at this. But the good news is I think, <laughs> I, think I can strum a guitar in Eve, Eve and I think I can swing a pickleball paddle. So first question, my wife asked the doctor, by the way, so how many days should he take off from pickleball? And I was like, this is awful, I'm an addict. Um, (laughs) My name is Josh, I'm thankful to be here this morning. Thank you for being here. Can you believe that it is a week until Christmas? a week until Christmas. I feel like all the men I say that and your blood pressure rises and you're like, I've gotta go to Walgreens and get last minute gifts. Don't go to Walgreens for last minute gifts, by the way, be awful. You know, uh, every year I I tend to listen to uh, Christmas music a little bit earlier in the year than I know that I'm supposed to, which is like the age old debate. When is it appropriate to listen to Christmas songs? I started the week before Thanksgiving. Any people start early with their Christmas listening to? Yeah? there's like only three people who raise their hand, even though there's like half of you, because you don't want to be shamed right now for listening to Christmas music. This year, we turned Christmas songs on in our car the week of Thanksgiving. And Elsie, this whole sermon is just gonna be Elsie's stories. She uh, she goes, daddy, why are we listen to Christmas songs, it's not Christmas time yet. And my heart broke in that moment when Elsie already gets it, she's three and a half. But, you know, we all probably have some traditions that this time of year, it, It just, it gets you ready. It gets you excited for where Christmas is. Like maybe, uh, maybe for you, it's an ornament exchange or something like that. Maybe it's a certain movie that like, you have to watch it every, uh, every single year. Like keep the change, you filthy animals. Anybody? Anybody? Only time I'll ever quote that in a sermon. I just really wanted to say it. Okay. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, that's mine. Like the Claymation Rudolph. Like as soon as I watch it, I'm like, oh, this is the jingle, 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 you will hear. We won't do that on EV, but it would be awesome. But you probably have something in your life that you you do, it gets you excited about this season and this time of year. You know, for me, it really is that very first Sunday of Advent, like the week of Thanksgiving when we walk in and even just like the graphic on the screen, I see Advent and I get so excited about this year, this time of year. You know, just thinking of Advent, the coming of our King. And something about it is, it, it, it really is just the anticipation. It's the excitement as we look ahead. And, and even, even our culture, everything changes. But there's this anticipation with Advent. You know, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. Once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. What I love about Advent is it allows us to step into the shoes of those who are waiting for Jesus. And it's hard to do if we're honest because we're acutely aware of the incarnation. We're aware of Jesus coming. But really, if you think about it, we stand in a similar place in some sorts. Christ has come, but we see around us the brokenness of this world and we stand in this place where we have rest for our souls, but we know that things are broken and God is making all things new. And we know that Christ will return again, that he is coming. But think about just stepping into the shoes of those at that very first advent, the arrival of their King. The prophets of old had been prophesying, the Torah, the law, everything was culminating to this redemptive moment in history, God making himself known, God making a promise that a savior would come, revealing his grace, revealing himself through his word, and then God revealing himself in the word, becoming flesh, that everything that the word and the prophets were speaking of when it comes to redemption culminated in that very first advent, the coming of our King, the coming of Jesus, grace upon grace. We're in John chapter one, uh, during the series, and we're really gonna camp out in verses 16 and 17, but I wanna read a little bit of around it, uh, around these verses to give us some context. We'll start in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. You know, Ross touched on this the very first week of uh, this Advent series, but it's important to point out that to the audience hearing this, especially the Greek audience hearing this for the very first time, it would have absolutely blown their minds. I hope it absolutely blows our minds this morning. But for them, the divine would never ever coincide with the flesh the divine would never coincide with this mundane world. So, I mean, literally foundational to the axioms of the philosophy of the Greeks, these were separate things. So for God, the divine to put on flesh and step into time and be with his people and never lose his godness would have absolutely blown their minds. And to the Jewish people, Similarly, we read in the book of Exodus that uh, what they had always known was the presence of God in the tabernacle, yet they're hearing in this moment that God would come and actually tabernacle amongst them, that his presence would be freely given to those who say yes to Christ. All of this would have been mind-bending. Is it for us this morning that God, the creator, of the heavens and the earth who knit you together in your mother's womb, who knows the hairs on your heads, how many grains of sand are on the beaches in this world would take on human flesh, walk on our midst, live a perfect life that we never ever could, die a death that we deserve and conquer sin. And I hope this morning that just does something to us, that we don't miss that as we step into Christmas this week. You know this isn't an ethereal or nebulous concept of glory. This is the glory of God taking up tangible form and able to be touched, able to be experienced. So the first thing we'll dive into this morning is the grace of the law, the grace of the law. In verse 16, John writes, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, he continues to say that through Moses came the law, through the fullness of Christ comes grace and truth, so I'll be honest, this is one of the more difficult passages in uh, John chapter one to extrapolate the meaning from, uh, so much in fact, apparently I cut my finger hoping I could get out of it, but here we are this morning, just kidding, not really, that didn't really happen, I did text Ross at some point and we did not know what was going to happen, but here we are this is a difficult passage that i hope that we can extrapolate the meaning out of so the first thing is this grace upon grace that's where i want to camp for a moment this phrase that's used in greek it's really mostly commonly used when it's talking about an exchange of goods or selling something that you're giving something and you're taking something really the closest that we have to this meaning in the new testament is found in luke chapter 11, and it's this, uh, it's this idea of who comes to their father and asks for a fish and the father gives them a serpent, this, this exchange. That's the, maybe the closest that we have. But in essence, it means this, grace in exchange for grace. That the law was gracious, the coming of Christ is gracious. It really means that in the fullness of God, who is full of grace, that he gives an overabundance, a superabundance of grace and blessing upon his people. Grace upon grace, a superabundance of grace for the people of God. And this does not depreciate the law, but rather it emphasizes that God has always been gracious and has given us one good gift after another. Some renderings of this passage say blessing upon blessing I once uh, heard someone liken it to wave after wave that crashes on the shore. You know, I grew up in Southwest Florida and uh, one of my favorite things is just a sunrise or a sunset and you sit at the beach and here's what I know. A lot of you know what that's like too because spring break here, no one lives in Huntsville anymore. The whole city's desolate because everyone goes to the beach somewhere. But it's like sitting on the beach and just the cadence of the waves that never end. Grace upon grace upon grace is like wave after wave after wave crashing on the shore. What John is saying here in this passage is that Moses played a significant role. He provided for us the Torah that John calls the law in verse 17. And these are not being discredited because grace and truth came through Moses too. John, he doesn't intend to show us that grace The grace of Christ stands at odds with the revelation of Moses. The law likewise contains the grace of God and is an earlier display of it. So what's the big idea here? The first thing is this, that God has always operated out of grace, always. Even in the Old Testament, God has been a gracious God. His modus operandi has always been grace, if you will. We read in 2 Timothy, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And hear this, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And we see this woven all throughout the Old Testament and in the law and the prophets. Just to give a few examples. When Adam chose selfishness, God made a sacrifice and covered his shame. Grace, when the world chose evil over God, we read in Genesis six, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace, when Joseph's brothers did all they could do to ruin Joseph's life, we read in Genesis 50, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, grace. Moses, a doubtful, stubborn murderer, God chose and walked with him, grace. Rahab, a Gentile, three times called a harlot. She protected and brought in God's people and she was brought into the family of God, grace. David, an adulterer and a murderer, cries out in Psalm 51, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And the Lord does just that, grace upon grace, and we see this throughout the tapestry of the Old Testament, that grace is woven throughout the law. Grace upon grace, like wave after wave crashing on the shore. The second thing about the grace of the law is that the law and the prophets were always pointing us to Jesus. They were always pointing us to Jesus. In verse 17 in John 1, We read, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. That language is important. The law was given through Moses. That means the law and Moses, they they were separated. It was a thing that he passed down, but then we're told that grace and truth came through Jesus. The very essence and being of who Jesus is, is gracious and true. The Old Testament law is good and gracious as well. It reveals who God is. It reveals God's character. It points out our sin, which we'll dive into in a moment. It points out our need for a savior. It points out what it means to live a holy life. And it is always pointing to Jesus. But as good as the law is, Jesus, God in flesh is better. When I was 17 years old, I bought my first cell phone. Uh, So this was like 2003, 2004 back then. cell phones were like bricks, remember? They were like the Nokia, you could throw down a flight of stairs and you're like, oh, it ain't broke. You know, that thing was gonna live through anything. You drop an iPhone like three inches, you shatter the screen. But back then it was like the Nokia, you just had the brick and you could play, uh, was it, what was it, Centipede or something? Snake, thank you guys, Snake. I don't know why I brought that up just now. I'm just living in memories here of Snake on my Nokia brick. But back then it was really expensive to make phone calls. So you had to buy like the the packet, I bought the package that was like free phone calls after seven, does anyone remember that? It was like after nine or the premium was after seven. And like three of you are shaking your head yes, but you definitely know because you would be like, should I send this text message? Cause it's like a dollar, right? And you, you had to weigh the importance of the text, right? So I bought the seven o'clock plan. And the reason why I bought this plan is because when I graduated high school, Deanna was moving to Rochester, New York for college. Why anyone would leave Southwest Florida for Rochester, New York, I don't understand. But Deanna did it, all right. So Deanna moved to the Arctic tundra, and I stayed in 85 degrees and 120 percent humidity. So it was great. But I bought this phone explicitly for one reason: to talk to Deanna because I was in love with Deanna, and I thought I could convince her to be in love with me too. Okay, so I bought I bought, I bought this phone, and D and I talked every single day, and it was always at seven. I mean, I was ready at seven o'clock and we would talk for hours upon hours upon hours. And it was amazing. I got to know Deanna in, in in an incredible way and fell more in love with Deanna. But then I remember after a year, Deanna called me and this was like one of the greatest phone calls of my entire life. But she was like, I don't think I can afford year two of school in Rochester. I might have to move back home. And I was like, yes, this, that was weird, huh? The finger, <laughs> I can't awesome I was so excited why was I excited because Deanna would actually be with me in person and that's so much better than a phone call her being tangible and with me seeing her grace to the people around me things that I never would have known about Deanna and you know what happened I fell more and more in love with her and I convinced her to love me yes now i thanks for laughing Deanna she's the only one. Oh, I love you so much uh but she was present, of course that was better. The grace of the law was always pointing us to Jesus. It was revealing Jesus throughout biblical history. It was pointing and unfolding the character of God and what it means to live a holy life. However, Jesus then stepped into time. The incarnation tells us that he is here, that is better. Jesus, tangible, touchable, present, the very essence of grace and truth walking in our midst. Out of his faith, out of his fullness, grace upon grace, like wave after wave crashing on the shore. So how does the law point us to Jesus? We could spend a whole sermon series on this, but I'll just touch on a few things. One we already did in Genesis chapter three. When the law is broken, when they're, sin infects this world, what happens? There's the promise of Christ to Adam and Eve already that one is coming who will crush the head of a serpent pointing to Christ immediately. In Genesis 15, we read the story of Abraham and the promised gift of salvation by grace through faith, he made a covenant with Abraham. It's an amazing story. I had a lot more notes on this, but I won't dive too far into this. But if you read the Abrahamic covenant, it's such a sweet moment because there's a promise of salvation in the way that God operates still today, faith by grace, right? It's God's grace, our faith, and that's it. It's, it's, it's not a meritocracy. It's not based upon your performance. performances. Nothing you can do. God unconditionally gave gave his promise to Abraham, so much so, he put him in a deep slumber, walked through the sacrifices and made a covenant with Abraham and Abraham never got up and did a thing. And it was always pointing to the seed who is Jesus, as we'll read in Galatians three in a moment, always pointing to the promise of Christ that we celebrate this Advent season. And then if you read the book of Leviticus or other parts of the Torah and the law, you read about the sacrificial system, which was always pointing to the unblemished lamb who would die once and for all for us. In Hebrews nine, starting in verse 12, we read this, Jesus did not enter the tabernacle by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But hear this, how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The list could go on and on. And that's why John can write to us that out of God's fullness, we have received grace upon grace. So this should lead the Christ follower to naturally ask this question. And what's our relationship to the law today? What does the law mean? What does the Old Testament mean for the Christian today? Let me first tell you what it doesn't do. The law does not save us. The law does not save us. There's pretty much an entire book of the Bible written on this, by the way, it's the book of Galatians. And uh, I was a young adult pastor at my last church and we went through uh, the book of Galatians. I think it took us over a year to do six chapters. We went through the book of Galatians and um, the context is important as we read Galatians three in a moment. But what we read is that Paul had already explained the gospel to this church. And they had received the gospel, they believed the gospel, they believed in the grace of God, they believed that Jesus lived the perfect life that they couldn't live, died a death that they deserved. They said yes to the gospel. And then as Paul went away, a group of Judaizers came in and said, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's good, but also to be saved, to have salvation, you have to do a bunch of these things. And it became a performance-based religion. So that's the context in which Paul is coming in. As a matter of fact, a little side note, uh, this really was the book, this in the book of Romans, that was the catalyst of the Reformation. Martin Luther read the book of Galatians and for the first time felt the shackles of meritocracy and performance fall off and felt the washing over him of the grace of Jesus. And this is what we read. Brothers and sisters, Let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seeds. Scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person who is Jesus Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So Paul is adamant here that something either comes from grace or it comes from works. It either comes by the giver's promise or the receiver's performance. It is one or the other and they are mutually exclusive. It can't be both grace and works because then it would cease being grace. It would cease being a gift. Let me give a simple example. It would be like one of you calling me and saying, hey, Josh, come over to my house. I have a gift for you and I'd love love to give it to you. And then I'd be like, oh, that's great, thank you. And I'd show up at your house and you're holding the gift in your hand and as you open the door, you say, all right, but what did you bring me? And I'd be like, you're a terrible gift giver. (laughs) I'm pretty sure this isn't how this works because it would no longer be a gift there would be contingencies, there would be conditions. It would be based on something that you have done or brought to the table. It ceases being grace and what Paul is saying is that this gift of grace and this promise was given 400 plus years before a law ever existed. It's always been based upon the power and the work of God and God alone. And amen to that because you know what would happen if it wasn't that way? One of two things. One, we would all be radically in despair and anxiety all the time, or we would be incredibly self-righteous and we would boast in ourselves. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is it doesn't leave room for that. The only thing we can boast in is Jesus and Jesus alone. Not me, not you. Jesus, and thank the Lord, right? That we're not running around trying to clean ourselves up, but Jesus does it for us. Unconditionally, the promise existed before the law ever did. And we read that in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. Therefore, the law must have a different purpose. In Galatians 3, Paul continues, he says, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed of whom the promise referred had come. So the first thing is this, our relationship to the law is that the law points out to us that we are lawbreakers. The law points out to us that we are lawbreakers, that we are sinners in desperate need of being saved. James two says this in a very weighty way, but it says whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all, it points to us that we are lawbreakers. This is the gift of my, or this is the story of my salvation. And I've maybe shared this with y'all before, but two weeks before my senior year of high school, my parents were going through a very, very difficult divorce and I had anger that had been welling up in me over time. Most of it inwardly, but I could feel it. I mean, it was just, I was so frustrated and angry with my family. And I remember I was not a Christian. My dad walked in my room on a Saturday night. He asked me to go to church with him the next day. And I sit down and wouldn't you believe the sermon was on anger? Of course it was, right? And I'm sitting there and for the first time ever, I was like, what is happening to me? What is it that I'm feeling right now? But I was convicted for the first time. I knew that my sin was being revealed to me. Then the pastor did like a, the, the old Southern Baptist altar call and he explained what the gospel was. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, I need Jesus. I was super introverted. I was like, but I sure as heck am not walking up to the front, all right? So I go home and I do the only thing I can think to do. I open up the Bible to the very beginning and I start reading in the book of Genesis. And I read and I read and I read. And you know what happened? My sin was revealed to me more and more and more. I felt the weight of my plight. And then I had a recollection of the gospel that he had preached that morning. And I just said, God, I absolutely need you because I can't do this on my own. The law points out to us that we are lawbreakers. The second thing is that the law continually points us back to the unconditional promise of God. It always points us back to the unconditional promise of God. Paul continues, Galatians 3.22, the law was given so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I read this John Stott quote, it's been my favorite quote over the last couple weeks. He writes this, after God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses, why? He had to make things worse before he can make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and to close, disclose what he is really underneath, sinful, rebellious, guilty under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first been revealed to him. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Y'all, the more that we understand the weightiness of our sin, the sweeter the gospel is. The more that we understand our plight, how much sweeter the incarnation is when we celebrate Advent. The last thing is this, in our relationship to the law, understanding the fullness of God's promise and his abundant grace should lead us to willful obedience, not coercive obedience to the law. In essence, that we're not saved by our good works, but we're saved to good works. Is the law good and gracious? Yes. Paul later uses this metaphor in Galatians three. He says that the law is like being under a guardian or a tutor. The Greek word here is pedagogos, And pedagogos it literally means a guide, that the law is a guide. This would be likened to a parent to their child preparing them to be adults. Paul is no longer, is, is, is he's not saying that we have no relation to the values of God's law, but that we no longer view it as a system of salvation. Right, we become Christians. Does loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength go away? Of course it doesn't. Loving your neighbor as yourself, does it go away? Of course it doesn't. Not lying, not murdering, not coveting, do those go away? No, of course they don't. But when we are saved by grace, our hearts are filled with the desire to please and be like our savior. The law is gracious, grace upon grace. Jesus is gracious. This grace upon grace is like a wave after wave crashing on the shore. So the question this morning as we land is this, do you see salvation as the gift that it really is? As we step into this last week of Christmas, do you see the incarnation as a gift? You know, uh, I've, uh, I've shared to our young adults and to our students before that um, my, my love language is gift giving, that's number one, which is tough because it's the last thing for Deanna, She's like, gift giving is number five. Uh, She's also physical touch number one, and physical touch is number five for me. We've been in therapy for 15 years of marriage. I'm kidding. That's that's such a. Yeah, sick. Cool. I'd take that sentence back. Great. Love you. But I, I, so for me, I, I always love Christmas time, not only because it's, it's Advent and we're celebrating the coming of our King, but also like, I love gifts. And, and part of it is that it's, it's not the monetary value of the gift, it's the fact that like, you were thinking of me and I was thinking of you and you know me well enough to know, oh man, what this is, this is Josh or vice versa. I'm like, oh man, this is Scott Bogartis. You just happen to be who I saw, but I don't have a gift for you. I'm really sorry, <laughs> psych. Um, <laughs> But I I love it, and and, and maybe some of you, there are gifts that they're just memorable. There's moments that you remember where you opened up that gift. I I don't know what it may be, but I remember a few for me. When I was four years old, we finished opening all the presents, and then my dad pulled one of these, uh, oh man, we forgot to give you the last one. It's in my room somewhere. You ever done that to your kids? That's awful, you know? You're just like, you're just holding out until that one. And then my dad brings it out, it's this big box. And it was, he's like, this is for you and your brother. And we open it up and it was the very first Nintendo. The NES is like, oh, you know, it was amazing. And I remember that morning playing, I can't duck hunt right now, but duck hunt for the very first time. And then Super Mario Brothers, we have it on VHS. Just sorry guys, I'll teach you what VHS is later. But anyway, so I'm playing, that was awful. I love you guys. I'm playing, and, and it's just like I've been addicted to Super Mario Brothers for the NES ever since, trying to get LZ to love it right now. Then I remember just a few years ago, there was a gift that I got that uh, in the fall, my favorite car ever made is an old Beetle. And I just I love old Beetles. I'm not even really sure why because it's pretty much like a go-kart, but I love them. And D took me to go look at one. We've had one car our entire marriage up to that point. And we go to look at this beetle in the fall and it's this white beetle, true story, vanity plate. It's Betsy the beetle and it's white cow print. It was awesome. I loved it. And I was like, well, this is great and all, but we can't afford it. So fast forward like several months later, it's Christmas and Dee and I are out eating at a restaurant. We're sitting outside and like, you can hear a beetle coming because they're just, you know, putting along the road, you know, screaming for help. because they're gonna break at any moment. But all of a sudden, like I see the beetle and it pulls up uh, like behind Deanna and the owner of the beetle uh, opens the car door. And I was like, that looks like the beetle we looked at a few months ago. And he walks up and he walks straight to me and he just hands me the keys and doesn't say a word. And I was like, what is happening right now? I don't know what's happening, but my wife had surprised me and bought me this 1974 Betsy the beetle. And I remember, I remember that, I mean, like it was yesterday, I just feel it all right now. But man, nothing compares, nothing compares to the gift that we have in Christ. Don't miss that. You know, one of the sweetest things for me this season has been sitting down with my three and a half year old daughter at the dinner table, and we've been explaining to her what Christmas means And to see a three and a half year old just be filled with wonder and awe, y'all, it reminds you that at times we lose some of that. So I implore you for the next week, don't let this just be a nebulous thing or a story that's out there, but it's true. The gift, the incarnation that God, fully human, fully God would walk in our midst, tangible, touchable, for you, the gift of God, grace upon grace, like wave after wave crashing on the shore. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We're thankful just for this opportunity to dive into your word. We're thankful for this Advent season God, this morning, I know some of this is, is weighty as it should be, and the law does reveal the fact that we are lawbreakers, that we are in desperate need of being saving. But God, I pray for those in the room this morning that that may convict that Lord, they hear the good news of the incarnation of the gospel. And hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn King. So God, as we feel that weight, I'm just reminded of Paul's words in Romans seven and eight and wretched man that I am, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ for there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation that we would say yes to you. God, I pray that if there is any spirit of lethargy or apathy in us, God, that those chains would be broken. God, I pray that you would stir something in us that we couldn't even stand idle when we sing hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. As we sing all hail King Jesus, God, I pray that you would birth a passion and pursuit in us toward you. God, you are deserving of our praise. So God, I pray that we don't worship you this morning out of obligation, but we worship you this morning out of gratitude as a people who have been saved by much. God, that we would not miss these moments. These are sacred moments. Jesus, you are in this room. You show up in a powerful way. So God, I pray that we would see you for who you are, the God, of all creation, the God of all salvation, who pours out grace upon grace upon grace. God, we love you because you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.